Hello, this is Real Estate Insights, the podcast from Savills that examines every sector of the property world. And today we're probing a sector whose health is directly related to the health of the nation, the independent hospital market. We're now running about 6 million people for elective surgeries sitting and waiting queue. Some of the major providers such as Spire, for example, is seeing the proportion of its self-pay patients in particular almost double between 2020 and 2021. And I think from an investor perspective, and particularly from a real estate landlord perspective, people have realized that these hospitals are a part of the the basic healthcare infrastructure of a nation. And that actually, if you own them and you've got an operator in them who makes a profit, this is a very, very good place to be. I'm Guy Ruddle, and with me to perform our version of an MRI on the private hospital sector are three experts in this area. Karen Donoghue is a director in the operational capital markets team at Savills. She has much experience of the market in the US, which is where it's a bit more developed than here. So she'll be able to look into the future for us. Hello, Karen. How are you? Hello. Hi, everyone. And Henry Elphick is a senior advisor to the operational capital markets team. He's a sort of highly experienced CEO and chair and trustee in the healthcare sector and other sectors. Henry, it's an honour to have you on Real Estate Insights. I am delighted to be here. Excellent. And Richard Valentine Selzy is a director in the Savills Research Team. He specialises in operational real estate sectors like healthcare and senior living and student housing and all that sort of stuff. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thank you for having me. Right. Let's get let's get started then talking about this. We're talking about independent or private hospitals. So obviously one of the key things is what's happening to sort of hospital beds or numbers of hospital beds. Uh, Richard... With your research hat on, do you want to just give us an overall idea of what's happening to the supply of hospital beds in the UK? Yeah, sure. So if we rewind the clock to before we went into the COVID-19 pandemic, we'd already started to see the overall number of hospital beds in the UK market just starting to fall away. Between 2011 and 2021, the number of hospital beds actually fell by nearly 9%, leaving the UK with only 2.4 beds per 100,000 people, which is around half of the OECD average, and really kind of put the pressure on the healthcare sector as we went into the pandemic. And when you had this huge upswing of the need for critical beds, the number of people in the hospital, you just saw this massive pressure being put onto the NHS, which has fed through into this quite significant level of backlog we've seen. We're now running about 6 million people sitting in waiting queue. Really? And 6 million? Yeah, which is the highest we've ever had and risen by about 2 million over the pandemic. And the leaked NHS report has been heavily reported in the media during the early parts of this year, that they think, worst case scenario, that could be up to about 10 million over the next couple of years. But... But so so that's that's one thing you know that that we are we have a massive shortage of of beds which is a supply. But on the demand side, Henry, for instance, uh, you know it's one thing saying well there's this massive shortage of beds, but but most people don't you know they just go through the NHS. So unless you have a big upswing in in the demand for private beds, you, you, you're you know you're not going to creating a market, are you? I think it's quite interesting, actually, because if you look at all those stats that you've just heard, I I can give you different stats. So, for example, let's look at waiting lists. We think it's somewhere between 6 and 6.3 million, maybe up to 10 million. What the NHS is doing is actually what they're doing is they're getting patients in for their initial consultation. So they drop off the waiting list and then they're not proceeding with actually treating them. So, So we think the waiting list could be twice as high as that. That's the first thing. 
Second thing is it's not all about beds. We've got a low level of beds compared to the OECD countries, but that's because there's been a shift in the way that people get treated. People have outpatient treatments. They have minimally invasive surgery. They get treated with different drugs that maybe they can be treated with at home. You can have home chemotherapy, for example, which is, is fantastic. We don't want to go into hospital all the time. So I think that, that that's part of the reason why the number of beds have come down. The real bottleneck is operating theatres and people. And if you can't get people into an operating theatre and you can't get the right doctor to actually perform the procedure, then you have a problem with your backlog. And what ought to be happening is that the NHS should be using the independent sector who have spare capacity to get rid of those waiting lists. But if you look at the numbers, that's, that's not what is happening at all. Uh, in fact, FIN, which is the private healthcare information network, came out with the data for the last quarter, which showed that the usage of the independent sector is at the same level as it was pre-COVID in the last quarter. By the NHS? By the NHS. So the NHS moving people, NHS patients, into the independent hospitals to be treated at the NHS tariff in order to get rid of that waiting list. It's at the same level in the last quarter as it was before the pandemic. But is there more demand coming away from the NHS? Are people doing more private healthcare insurance and the like? Yeah, absolutely. So what happened in lockdown is, you know, you have your Booper or your AXA PPP insurance policy, but you couldn't use it because you couldn't get to a hospital because all the NHS hospitals were dedicated to COVID and all the independent sector, all their capacity had been effectively bought uh, on option by the NHS in case they needed overflow. And, and was just sitting there broadly idle. So you couldn't get treated in lockdown. So everybody with a health insurance policy absolutely is trying to get into a private hospital to get treated. But actually, there's a whole new group of buyers of private health care, which is people who are putting their hands in their pockets, self-pay patients who maybe have been sitting on an NHS waiting list for a long time. It may be in, in extreme pain if you're waiting for an orthopedic procedure. And if you're hip or your knee, you may be in a lot of pain. And actually, they said, you know, for seven, eight thousand pounds, I'm going to bite the bullet. I'm going to go to my local private hospital and I'm going to get it fixed. Um, Karen, sorry, when, when Henry said self-pay, you started nodding. <laughs> <laughs> what I was going to say is just exactly that. Some of the major providers such as Spire, for example, is seeing the proportion of its patients, uh, its self-pay patients in particular, almost double between 2020 and 2021. So you're definitely seeing a lot more people, like Henry said, reaching into their pockets and actually paying for procedures because they are tired of the long waiting periods. Um, I think we saw in the last kind of 12 months, you're seeing waiting periods go from eight weeks up to 13 weeks. You have people sitting on this backlog waiting a very long time for procedures and are kind of tired of waiting and using their own money in order to then actually uh, get the procedures that they, they need to have done. Yeah, because you saw that when you looked at the um, <clears throat> recent rare consulting report for the London Clinic, which showed that from their survey, a quarter of respondents are more willing to pay for their own medical care now than they were pre-pandemic. And when you go up to the higher earners, those over 100,000, that rise up to 50%. And you're looking at this position like, if you're facing the need to get something done, and I think COVID has really just brought back to everyone's attention, the front of their mind, that their health is one of the most important parts of their life. 
And without that, it really impacts everything else. So the willingness and desire to just get rid of the problem, solve, solve them now if you can, is going to create this level of demand we haven't seen before. Yeah, so I understand that. And I, and I buy that idea that the, the, you know, there is just a, a significantly more demand coming down the road for those reasons. But also coming down the road is, well, already arrived down the road, is much higher inflation, energy problems, economic you know, difficulties, which almost not quite without exception, but almost however much you earn, uh, is going to start being being front of mind. And if you're going to have to pay for, you know, if it becomes a choice between keeping the house warm or getting your hip sorted, is, is, that a, is that a risk to the sector? What I would say is that the type of patient who's likely to be a self-pay patient or to have private medical insurance is going to be less affected by those pressures. Most private medical insurance is from large corporate employers, um, you know, the sort of FTSE 350 type employer, and they're not going to withdraw that sort of benefit because of where energy prices are going. And to get to the, the, the comment you just had now about the, the, the wealth of the 100,000 plus, um, th- those are the sort of people who, again, would be able to absorb those energy increases and still be very, very motivated to pay for a clinical procedure if they're in pain. And more importantly, if it's preventing them from working and earning money. So let's talk a little bit then about who's in this market, who the operators are, you know, how, how it's structured and everything. Karen, do you want to sort of give us a, a sense of, is, it, is this a highly diversified market or is it well, you know, well or badly consolidated? It's very consolidated in terms of operators. Uh, about three quarters of all private patient procedures are given amongst the five top operators in the space. Um, and the largest three operators alone, Spire, Circle and Nuffield, account for over half of the total market. So you're looking at a market that's very much driven by five kind of major corporates in the space. Does it make it hard to get into? Definitely. I mean, it creates massive barriers to entry, which is why I think when you look at kind of the investment market more broadly, I think that's kind of the the drive for a lot of investors is that people are, we're seeing in the past kind of 10 years time, we've seen yields compress pretty drastically. And since 2020, you're looking at, uh, I guess the last 24 months, you're looking at over 2 billion of transactions in terms of volume. Um, we've seen more hospital transactions in the 24 months alone than kind of ever before. Really? So you're seeing people, yeah, you're seeing people looking at opportunities in the space because they realize the high barriers and they're willing to pay more as a result of that. And are these really financially successful businesses? At least financially, are they very healthy? Ho, ho. I think they are. I mean, look, my view is that, that COVID's had a really interesting and unexpected impact on this sector. Going into COVID, everybody thought that healthcare was a good place to be because COVID was, was a health-related pandemic. Then the entire independent sector discovered that their revenue went to zero because none of their patients were allowed into their hospitals. Then they got bailed out by the government and effectively underwritten during the pandemic to keep their capacity on stream. And then post-pandemic, they've got a backlog of patients desperate to be treated in their hospitals who are probably rather less price sensitive than they were pre-COVID. And I think from an investor perspective, and particularly from a real estate landlord perspective, people have realized that these hospitals are a part of the, the basic healthcare infrastructure of a nation. And that actually, if you own them and you've got an operator in them who makes a profit, and I you know basically they make profits of mid to high teens EBITDA, so they are structurally profitable. With the tailwind of all this demand, which Mansfield Advisors estimates will underpin the market for at least seven years, this is a very, very good place to be. That sounds very healthy, but you know, 
again, you know, rather with the, the state of the overall economy and whether people can afford private healthcare, you know, sort of, it's hard to get staff, it's staff costs are going up, you know, sort of all, all the, the cost base of these hospitals must be rising pretty fast as well. Yes, it is. And it's not without its challenges. But I think there are two elements. One is the, the pressure operationally. And whilst costs are going up, you're getting significantly higher levels of, of occupancy. Uh, and that has operational leverage. So, so the businesses are doing very well, and they can absorb some of that inflationary cost. And then secondly, as a landlord, you know, clearly, you're also seeing an increase in your rent. And whilst a number of these leases are caps and collars, um, the, the caps are set at a level where those landlords will see an increase in rental income over the next few years as inflation feeds through. So, so it's not all bad, I think, is the key message. Do they tend to own their own buildings? Do they own their own hospitals or, 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 or do investors own them and they lease them? The latter. It, it, it's a mixture, I think, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, someone like the biggest operator circle doesn't own any of its property. It's all owned by Medical Properties Trust, which is a, a US healthcare REIT. Spire Healthcare, in contrast, owns half its properties and half of them are leased. So that leaves us then with 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 the the investor situation, and and you know you you guys are all saying that this is a great opportunity investor for for investors. Who are the current investors in the market, Karen? And and is there room for new investors to come in? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, over the last again kind of twenty four months, we've seen more investment in the space than ever before. I mean, the majority of those transactions have been through two North American companies, Medical Properties Trust and, and Northwest Healthcare REIT. Um, there's a lot of money seeking to enter the space, but the barriers to entry are quite high, which is why we're seeing such yield compression, um, because there is a lot of activity. People see the opportunity in terms of the demand profile and the underpinning, I guess, sectoral tailwinds that underpin the sector. But I think the reality is there isn't a massive amount of hospital stock more broadly. So it's not a massively traded market like you might see across some of the other operational asset classes. There are just challenges building anything at the moment. Hospitals are just difficult to find the land, get the planning, pull through, make sure it's going, knowing where it's going to go, knowing how you're going to do this, getting the opportunity to get the right type of consents in the right locations for the right catchment you're trying to go to. But also just generally with all property at the moment, you're facing the massive headwinds of can you afford to build anything at the moment? So even if you can find the site today and you can get the investment lined up today, can you get someone to deliver it for you on cost to make it profitable for you to run this now? Or are you going to have to wait 12, 18 months to see how things start to settle down? For a new investor in the sector, I mean, presumably there are lots and lots of dynamics in this market which are specific to this market. And and it it would be a minefield to sort of just walk in waving money around, I, I guess. If you look at who's invested in the last 12 to 18 months, as Karen's mentioned, it's been two North American REITs, and they've done it in very, very different ways. And, and they've been very creative in how they've done it. So Northwest Healthcare REIT, Canadian REIT, bought some hospitals from Welltower, which was a US REIT, and then bought the operating business, which was actually an administration, and put the operating business and the real estate back together again. Uh, created a lot of value by rewriting the leases and leasing it out to some very strong covenants, namely Spire and and Nuffield. Uh, And so I think when you're looking at investing in this sector, it's very helpful to have people who are experts, as those REITs are. It's very helpful to have people who are thinking more than just the yield and the check they're going to write, but how they're going to create incremental value. 
And it's very, very important, obviously, to be well advised. Yeah, well, it, yes, all right. <laughs> and I wonder where you might get that good advice. Um, how would you guys advise new investors in this area? People looking at this area, what, how would you advise them to actually get into this market? I mean, look, I think there are two ways you get in. You can either get in through the existing listed vehicles. So, you know, we, we've got in the UK, Secure Income REIT, which owns a number of Ramsey hospitals. We've got Ashura and PHP primary healthcare properties. Again, two other FTSE 250 REITs that are beginning to buy up hospitals and clinics and surgery centers. So if you want exposure to the sector, you can just buy their shares on the stock exchange. If you want direct exposure to underlying assets, then it helps certainly to have an existing portfolio or platform, some synergy, some angle, which gives you an advantage and allows you to to pay the, the winning price in an auction process. Um, and, and I think also an appetite to take more operational risk and an understanding of the operations is, is really how you're going to win these assets. I think that historically, I mean, it's been really difficult on the development side, specifically in hospitals, because it takes so long to get to profitability. So actually, the way that hospitals have evolved over time has really been by adding operating theaters or adding on to older buildings. That doesn't mean they're still not, uh, I guess... They're not more modern in the way that they they look, but ultimately the best way to remain profitable is by adding on rather than starting a new development because it can take 10 years to be profitable in that scenario. Yeah. Uh, uh, Henry, one thing that we talk about a lot is, is uh, in this country at the moment is, is mental health and things like that. Is that an area where, where you know, where, where sort of inpatient mental health and, and the like, where, where there's opportunity? I, I think there, there really is. And you know, we've seen some of the larger operators um, around the world be active both on the acute hospital side and also on the, the mental health or as the Americans call it behavioral health side. Um, and the most obvious example of that is, is UHS in America, which owns Signet, which is one of the largest mental health providers in the UK. But Ramsey is probably the most recent one to have made an acquisition. So Ramsey operate acute hospitals, largely focused on the NHS. And then in October last year, they bought a company called Elysium, for £775 million, which is one of the leading mental health providers. And I think having those two sitting alongside each other, you're seeing it in more and more markets with more and more operators doing both. And then from an investor perspective, you're seeing, again, that track in exactly the same way. So Medical Properties Trust that owns a number of BMI hospitals or Circle Group, as they're called now, also bought all the real estate owned by Priory Group, or all the hospital, mental health hospital real estate owned by Priory Group. So again, in the UK market, they've got exposure to both sectors. And I think that'll be an emerging theme, both from an operator perspective and from a sort of landlord real estate perspective. So uh, you're not allowed to go uh, without playing our game of tell me something I don't know, a little sort of nugget of information that sort of shines an extra bit of light on the sector. Not hard to, to, to come up with things that I don't know, but, but, but where should we start? Let's, uh, let's start with Richard. We'll, let, we'll start with you. Tell me something I don't know. So the number of people waiting more than a year on their waiting list has risen from 1,600 in February 2021 to over 312,000 people. From 1,600, 1,600? Yes. To three what? 312,000. Blimey. I sort of slightly wish I hadn't. <laughs> something I didn't want to know. Um, uh, Henry, you go next. Government really likes spending money on health and healthcare. And that's good for all of us. So did you know we now spend more money per capita than the French on healthcare? 
God, I spent years saying that it was the other way around. I'll, ha- I'll have to change my tune. Karen, what, tell me something I don't know. Uh, 1.5 billion, what MPT recently paid for a portfolio of 30 hospitals acquired from BMI, demonstrating the amount of capital and, and kind of investors seeking uh, to get into the private hospital space. Yeah, so there's plenty of money around. Yeah, right? the scale. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all of you, thank you so much for that. Uh, that's it for this episode of Real Estate Insights. If all that's done is whet your appetite for more information, you'll find the UK Private Independent Hospitals Report on the research section of the Savills website, savills.co.uk forward slash research. Thank you very much for listening and see you next time. This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. Savills accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect or consequential loss arising from the use of, reference to or reliance on this podcast or its content. Savills makes no warranty as to the accuracy of the information in this podcast. This podcast and all copyright in this podcast is the property of Savills and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without Savills' prior written consent.